Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins, and today I speak with filmmaker Matt Smuckler, the director of Wildflower that is now available for streaming right now. This is a film that is just brimming with stars. We've got Kiernan Shipka of Mad Men and Sabrina fame, Emmy and Golden Globe winner, the queen, Jean Smart. If you haven't seen Hacks, I don't know what you're doing. Also Academy Award nominee, Jackie Weaver, who you see in Yellowstone, Charlie Plummer, Alexandra Daddario of The White Lotus, Brad Garrett, everyone loves Raymond. Oh my gosh, it's insane how many people signed on to this movie and Matt speaks about how that happened. The film itself is inspired by a true story. It's a coming-of-age film that follows B. Johnson from birth to graduation as she navigates life with two neurodivergent parents and an extended family who can't quite agree on the best way to help. The film premiered at TIFF in 2022, and not only is this Matt's feature film directorial debut, but it's a very personal story inspired by his own niece and her parents. Matt also directed and produced the award-winning 2020 documentary of the same title, and he also speaks to where the title came from, so listen for that. In our conversation, we also discussed how we can use our own family members as inspiration for our characters while not burning bridges and ensuring that we will be invited back for Thanksgiving. And Matt also gives us three tips on how to get your first feature in the can that are actionable and something that made the task feel a lot less daunting. So here we go. Welcome, Matt, to the No Film School podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. So we are, um, by the time this comes out, your film will be available on streaming, Wildflower, your directorial debut. Um, how are you feeling? Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. Actually, it'll be in theaters on the 17th, too. But yeah, so it's, it's, all, it's all happening. So it's, I'm excited. Does it feel real? Because, you know, when... when I, I, when did you start thinking you were going to be a filmmaker? Was this always on the agenda? Is this kind of a life dream that's now you're existing in? Yeah, it's it's also sort of surreal actually now. But I, you know, I I started in advertising, so I've been directing commercials and music videos and shorts and and for you know quite quite a while. And you know, I've they've definitely stayed in my lane, and so um, and really enjoyed it. But over the last, I guess, the last few years is when I kind of. Um, really sort of started to think about longer formats and 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 uh, doing a feature. Did you know that this was the story that you wanted to tell because its first iteration was as a documentary? What was the arrival to the story? 
Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I did the documentary more as it was really meant as a companion piece for my niece who was going to be going uh, applying to college. And I was doing it really as a short kind of piece just to highlight her. Incredible. She she really is. And and then it just kind of started to take a life of its own. And then basically it, it became, a, you know, a, a documentary. And I really wasn't thinking about it as a feature at all, as a narrative feature. I was working on a different project with Jana Savage, who's an incredible screenwriter and, and partner on this. And I can't remember if it was, I feel like I had showed her some footage or something. We were working on this other project and literally, I feel like it, somehow I think she said, oh, we should make this into a, a, a narrative. And, and you know, I really wasn't that interested in that because I didn't want to recreate the documentary. And I just thought I had been living with this for on and off. I was going out there like for six years. It was like kind of a long documentary process. And uh, at least for me coming from commercials, which is like, you know, two weeks and you're kind of done. So it was just one of these things where I ended up, we sort of pivoted once we kind of figured out a different way in, which for me was, you know, sort of not, not it's, it's obviously not a comedy, but, but we add, but there was a lot of, there's a lot of comedy in it now. And mm -hmm. I felt like that might be a more accessible way to get, you know, even more people kind of to watch and to kind of um, see this incredible family story. So it's, it's interesting because a lot of the time people talk about, you know, write what you know, create what you know, tell a film that is a story that only you can tell. And, and not only are you, were you working with that as a starting place, but you also had the documentary. Talk to me a little bit about how you moved from your your family to a fictionalized scripted family and how you protected your family and also protected the characters as standalone characters when you moved into the 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 features the scripted yeah, feature no, space. A, it's a really good question and i think you know it's my wife's family and so it's it's my wife's sister it is my niece and and obviously it was a very very it was very tricky for me i think that was the biggest thing was how to kind of yeah, sort of protect them, but also still tell a story that was true and authentic. And it was a balancing act from from the very beginning. And that was probably the thing that kept me up, you know, every, at night. Honestly, it wasn't the it, it you know it wasn't the actual filmmaking. It wasn't any you know it wasn't working with this incredible cast. It was mm -hmm. really this this idea that like I I just you know I got to make sure to kind of be as authentic as possible and and still not yeah not like lose my family in the process. <laughs> yeah. I, it's it's interesting. I some as a filmmaker and a writer and I also have uh projects that are related directly to things that have happened to my family or people in my family. I I found myself sometimes almost like pulling back and holding back on the characters to a point of like not letting them exist in an authentic way which you just mentioned and what I loved about um all, the entire family is that they were they were they felt real because they they were not perfect and they each had brought something different to the table and they each had their own perspective and i think that not shying away from from exploring that is what ultimately led to a quilt of a family that felt real like versus something you know that's shiny and you buy it at target and it's pretty it's like this is this, it had that or that really organic natural feeling that mm. i have only that i feel like i see in some of you know Little Miss Sunshine comes to mind and these films that really connect with people. So yeah, I mean, it, it feels like you did go for it. And, um, and that also feels 
or organic to your style. I've watched a couple of your shorts and there's something that's very like natural and organic and effortless about it, though I know it's not effortless. So I'd love to hear more about like how, you know, how you decided to tell this story from in that perspective, but also from the perspective of a young girl of B played by Kiernan Shipman. Am I butchering yeah, your name? Yeah, Kiernan Shifka. Yeah, yeah. No, well, thank you very much. I mean, that's really, really uh, very nice of you and and very flattering. I, I'm a huge fan of Little Miss Sunshine. And Silver Linings Playbook was another movie that I did think about. And actually, David O. Russell's doing the Q&A at the opening um, oh. on the 17th in Santa Monica. Yeah. You know, I think that for me, it was also really important that this was an inspired by. And so I wasn't recreating the documentary. It was very, very important to me. I think that also gave me some creative freedom to -hmm. just kind of use these characters who obviously are very real, but then really just kind of as a launch off point. And then it allowed Jana and I to really just kind of, you know, be free to kind of be as creative and and maybe push push it. And, And they became sort of not, family members to me. And I think that was mm. what was also really important. I was able to kind of say, okay, I have the documentary and now this is just this, the, their story is true, but then, you know, obviously we just were able to kind of embellish and, and recreate lots of things. And I think that was kind of, at least for me, was the way that I was able to kind of be free to, mm. I guess, detach myself uh, in, in a way that, that was not only fun for me, but then I think creatively was fulfilling. Yeah. Let's talk about how you and Jana collaborate together. So it sounds like you had a relationship before this film because you were collaborating on a different project. Am I, did I hear that correctly? Yeah. So Jana and I, I had um, a friend of mine um, had written a book and so we, she's a novelist and, and had written a screenplay, but I ended up bringing Jana in and they, you know, sort of to work on this, yeah, this existing project. And, and we just had a great working relationship. I think we have very similar kind of odd senses of humor and we certainly find, you know, a lot of things uh, that hopefully other people find funny as well. But and certainly she and I laugh a lot. And, um, and once we kind of got into plotting out, you know, the script, it was, you know, I think we took maybe six weeks or something and just kind of met every day and, and really just kind of blocked out how we wanted to tell this because it is again it's very different from the documentary and i can't reiterate that enough it's like in terms of when when you mentioned that yeah you, know, you have some projects that that are you know based on your own family i think that i'm just thinking about my my own personal family like i have something i've been working on for years and years and i haven't been able to kind of finish it i think what really worked for me was this idea that you use these characters that are real in your life that you know so well but that's just as a, it's a sketch in a way. And then you can just kind of add all these other things onto them. And then they become something very unique, which I think mm-hmm. is just so important when you're, when you're trying to make something. Totally. Otherwise it, sounds, it gets in the it was, way. It, it absolutely does. When, one of the, I had like a strange realization the other day uh, because I do, I do protect my characters as a writer and as a director sometimes to the point that it's like, then we're not feeling the tension and we're not, delivering on what we should be doing for the audience which yeah. is telling a yeah. story and uh and so and then i had this like sort of rush of insight when i was watching survivor the mike white season because i'm plugging in my gap now that i've binged all of the white lotus i'm like i need more <laughs> mike white so i'm watching this season and i'm like god these are such interesting characters but there's one person who's like incredibly manipulative and incredibly like 
mean in a way that feels like a caricature. And it was a nice reminder that people can be flawed and mean and, and they come with their own baggage and they, you know, I think the, um, the, the grandpa character in your film, he's like, you know, could easily been just simply vilified. But like, I think you did such a good job having him explaining the sort of gravity of like a situation that's been incredibly difficult and, and doing it with empathy, but also he's flawed and his perspective is flawed. And we see, uh, Gene Smart's character take action against that. And so I think that that is what gives our stories life, you know? Yeah, no. And it, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that and Brad Garrett played this role so beautifully and, and, and he really was, I only had him for a few days, but it, he brought so much to it. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I do think it's, it's, I guess maybe, and he, he was one of the only characters that I think I was, I was very worried about because again, he's quite different than, you know, my father-in-law, very different. But I think that idea of what it must've felt like to, you know, this whole debate about sterilization, the fact that we can have a debate and that sterilization is actually legal right now, still mm -hmm. in this country. Like you can sterilize your child if they have a disability. And it's, it's kind of, wild to me. And, and I, I, you know, I certainly didn't know that and, and, and learn that sort of through hearing these anecdotes from, from my wife's family. And then also just in, in terms of my own research. But yeah, I think that it, I guess for me, it was like a lot of this was based on anecdotes I had heard and, and then me sort of envisioning what it must have been like to be him and to have a child who you know, is neurodivergent and, and what does that mean exactly? And there, there isn't an easy answer. And, and this, and so I feel like, I feel like Brad took all of that on and very mm -hmm. intuitively and, and really kind of brought so much to, to that character that we ended up, I, I loved what he and Gene were doing so much that I, I, I remember I, it was like at the end of the day and we had, you know, we didn't have that much, in much time in terms of shooting. But I remember uh, I got with Jana at the end of the shoot day and I was like, we have to sh write something else for Brad. Like we have to write another scene. Mm. And we wrote two more scenes, one of which we ended up ha having to cut out, which was because the movie ended up feeling like it had too many endings. But mm. I just feel like he was so, so strong of a performer and brought so much intelligence and depth and three dimensionality, if that's a word, to it. Absolutely. That, if it's not, yeah, it I mean, is. I, I, I totally... I totally agree. And I, and it felt like that with every single character. And, and I, I think that actually brings us to casting because if we're, if you're, you as the director are creating this quilt that is a family that is complicated and messy and everyone is bringing their perspective to the table. How did you think about that in terms of bringing people together that would work and also feel believable as a family? Because, you know, I was like, yep, I know that family. I know that family. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it all started with, with Kiernan and, you know, I, I cast, I cast Kiernan after, you know, she was my first choice. We met, mm -hmm. we, we talked uh, at length about the character and the movie and, and I knew immediately, I mean, I knew sort of in the first 10 minutes of talking to her that she, she was it. And so I really think it started with her and then just kind of building this family unit around her and. And I, I got really, really lucky. I mean, I had all of my first choices in this movie. It's just like, wow, really kind of mind boggling because I'm going through trying to put together another couple movies now. And I'm like, God, it doesn't work like that. Um, 
it was just one of those things. I just think it was, I, I got very, very lucky. And I think it was one of those domino effects, you know, things where once I had, I had my sort of anchor, it, yeah. everything just kind of um, came together. Uh, Kiernan is such a, a good choice for this role because I think we've all, most, a lot of people have grown up with her or watched her grow up. And so immediately we're there rooting for her. You know, she obviously had an extensive like career on Mad Men. And, and what I, was kind of a bummer about that show, she didn't get the full, she wasn't at the center of that story. And so I feel like, you know, we're instantly there with her and supporting her. Now, was it always going to be B's story? Yeah, it was, it was always going to be B's story. Um, I think we did talk about it, you know, even in so much as the title wildflower, I do feel like as a family unit, they're all individually sort of these wildflowers who can, you know, kind of exist with very little in terms of human intervention in some ways. Like they just kind of, they're their own beings. And yeah, we always, we always kind of had it um, in our minds that it was going to be a bee's story. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the things that I, one of my pet peeves is uh, when something is a, told from like a young girl's perspective or a woman, young woman's perspective. And it like doesn't feel, I'm like, oh, this just feels like it's some guy trying to like think what a girl thinks like. I don't, I didn't get that at all. So I think that you and Jana created a really authentic character and obviously Kiernan brought it to life. But yeah, were, the, what were there any, were there any challenges of, of bringing together a story of a young girl as a, if, you, if our listeners can't tell, Matt, you are a, not a girl. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, look, it was, that was why it was so important for me that I did bring in Jana and that she and I worked on this together. And I've got a daughter, I've got a sister. Um, you know, I, I did grow up with a, with a younger sister, but yeah, no, that was a real concern of mine and making sure that I that I got it right. And I think I leaned heavily on Jana and on Kiernan to make sure that you know, it was as authentic and, and real as possible. And certainly, I, you know, I didn't want to feel the hand of, of, of you know, this male hand as uh, trying to sort of say that I understand what it's like to be a, a young girl growing up, because obviously I don't. But, um, but yeah, I just, I just tried to kind of lean on them as much as possible. And, yeah. um, and, and I was hoping that, you know, sort of it, there's a universality to... Um, Universality. I don't know. I'm making up all sorts of words. No, I love. Um, I, uh, I think I I understand exactly what you're saying. A universality to her experience. Yeah. Yes, and um, and so that was kind of what was most important to me. Mm-hmm. Now I want to hear about how you work on set. Let's like drill into your on set. You have you have your cast there. Uh, where again, your your style feels so like natural and effortless. So I'm like. Mm-hmm. What is Matt doing? Like, how does he start his rehearsals? How does he capture the moment? Are you saying action cut or are you saying go ahead? Yeah, I mean, look, I feel like I have been sort of training for this for 15 years or whatever. It's been since I've been just, you know, I've had so many days on set and I've been so fortunate in terms of 
kind of learning my craft and 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 constantly challenging myself and I'm I'm still have so much to learn and so in terms of the feature I kind of I you know I really kind of went with I, I, the confidence of technically knowing you know kind of exactly what I wanted and how I wanted to to execute I didn't do I didn't do very much uh, in terms of rehearsing I did have mm-hmm. the entire cast came to my house and we had breakfast and we all hung out and I just kind of you know and 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 for me I just kind of backed up and really let them you know be a family and and that was I think really helpful you know Samantha um I did do some rehearsing with Samantha who plays Sharon mm-hmm. um in the movie and then Dash Samantha and I uh worked on some stuff you know sort of uh we had like on, on a weekend I remember but yeah in terms of like there was not a lot of rehearsing you know we kind of got we we got there we blocked our scenes we did it, you know, once or twice, and then we went. And you know, I had everything shot listed, which was mm-hmm. really helpful. Like every single beat in the movie was shot listed, not storyboarded, but I, but I did have everything, you know, pretty dialed in in terms of how I wanted to execute it. Which is, and and also I think going in, you know, when you say it's sort of the effortlessness, which I really appreciate. Um, I did want this to feel like it was just happening in, in, you know, in sort of real time in front of us and that there was this feeling of, I kept worrying about it being too slick or I just didn't want it to feel my hand on it too much. And so I wanted there to be this observed quality, but then there are certain moments where I did want to sort of stylistically give it, maybe lean in if it, to, to, the, to the comedic elements, let's say, or, um, and then sort of when we're in a more emotional situation, I just wanted to hang back and let it, let it happen. I will say that the first scene in the hospital, it was always my intention to shoot that as a one take. So it was going to be like mm-hmm. a six minute one take with like, I don't know how many was it six, six people, six of the cast members all in that room pinned in. And it was, I had it all in my head. I was going to work. We had it. We actually had done it. That one I did a little camera rehearsal where we, with an iPhone, like we had it all planned mm-hmm. out. And then I get there and the cast was so fucking good that I was like, what am I doing? Like, I've got this reaction over here that I'm not able to catch because I'm staying on my one. And so within, I think within maybe 15 minutes, I just aborted that, the one take idea. And then I did coverage and I just, you know, I think, I think that, you know, and it wasn't a problem for me. Like I, I just, I just knew that it was like, I'm leaving too many great things. Yeah. You know, that nobody will ever be able to see. And so I do just sort of have to be able to I think pivot. Acknowledge that. And and that it seems like you you going in knowing that you didn't want the audience to feel your hand, you were able to recognize that a, a shot like a winner would be almost like flashy and taking away from the performance, which I think we all get excited about winners when we can pull them off. But I think also they become a thing where it's like, look, I did a winner brushing our <laughs> shoulders off. But like it's yeah. it's it it takes I think it takes one experience, but two, the ability to see the big picture of what you're trying to do to pivot like that. And, mm. and so, yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I think you, what you captured was so much more <laughs> meaningful than if it would be like a cool winner. I mean, I, again, I love a good winner, but yeah, I, because that scene is so critical to the movie. It's so critical to setting it up. And if it, right. if you, and then you also need to be able to craft a moment, like say you need to make a connection with two characters. So let's actually talk about getting into the edit. What is your, your relationship with your editor and how, how did you sort of approach it? Did they have the first pass or were you like very in there early on? Yeah. You know, 
It's funny because I've had, not to keep going back to commercials, but I do have such relationships with editors in commercials. I actually was thinking about bringing my commercial editor in initially to, to edit the movie. And I spoke to several friends of mine who come from commercials and gone on to do features. And, and a lot of them really encouraged me to look at feature editors. And I think it was mostly because as a first time filmmaker, I think their, their argument was like having a, an experienced feature editor will help you with the, you know, the producers, with the studio. And so anyway, I, I kind of, I think it was like, I was ready to pull the trigger on a, on a commercial editor. And then I met this editor named JC Bond, who is, is really an amazing, amazing editor. And he did Tim Burton's Big Eyes. And so mm-hmm. I just, you know, I, I, so I met with him and then I ended up, you know, deciding to go with, with him, having never worked with him before. And it was really an, a, a great experience for me. He, you know, sort of like my commercial editors was, is very fast. And so I was seeing stuff cut, you know, at the end of the day, I would see sequences and things and I would, oh, wow. you know, sort of, in, yeah, sometimes instead of even looking at the dailies, I would just look at some of these sequences that he would have for me. And, and so, yeah, it was, it was, uh, that was a really, I think a, a, a great decision on my, on my part to go with JC and he's so strong with story and we really were in sync and, you know, and, and he was strong enough to push back if he felt strongly on something and we would kind of argue through it and look at both, you know, sides. And, but I think, yeah, it's, it is so critical too, because it's like, I'm not used to, I wasn't used to working with someone for, I mean, I think, I think I, the DGA gave me, I forget how many, how long I had, whatever it is. I think it was Six ten, weeks or something. Weeks? Ten weeks. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. ten, ten or tw- ten. Yeah, weeks, so ten weeks, the, which is nothing for a feature. Is, That's an hour and forty five minutes. I know it, but it felt like you know a ton of time for me because I just wasn't used to having that. And so, yeah, I think it's you know really it's an it's an, a critical partner, um, mm-hmm. and and you have to not only enjoy the person's company but really really trust kind of their instincts in terms of the you know they're basically delivering this rough cut to you. So in the end, uh, you know, and then at some point I sort of, I, I ended up running out of time and I just couldn't watch some of these sequences. And so I did, you know, by the time I, it was the end and I went and, you know, he looked so nervous showing me, I was like, Oh, great. Like he looks, you know, like this <laughs> first cut and it's sort of like everybody prepped me for, you know, I, I'm sure you've experienced this where it's like, you see it and you're just like, want to jump out the window. Yeah, There's nothing here. Yeah. It's- I mean, he put everything in, he really sort of, it was a very blo- obviously very bloated and mm. um and he didn't want to not have anything in so you're sort of like I'm watching this movie that has like seven endings and the longest middle in history and but then from there you were able to start to chip down then and, we chipped and down shape. and yeah and it sounds like there was like a healthy creative tension which i think especially moving into long form it's really important to acknowledge like i don't know i i used to work in the advertising world and i was a lot of my job was making sure my clients were happy. I'm a people pleaser. And it has been historically difficult for me to, I felt very uncomfortable when there is that creative tension, which ultimately needs to happen to push for a better story. Now I feel like I can sit in it, but like, I think it's important to acknowledge that listening to why something's not working for someone can be critical to pushing the scene to be better or like finding a different way into it. Yeah, I think so too. And, you know, I think that, that JC, there's like, there was almost an old school kind of like, 
he was there to, without question, help me help to execute my vision. And there was never any pushback when it came to that. You know, it was mm-hmm. sort of, I think it became, you know, and there really wasn't much in the way of, of real tension other than, you know, sort of making sure that the rhythm was working in, in a way that we both were happy. And, and then, you know, I think we did sort of, I think, you know, fortunately I had an, a li- you know, I did have enough time to be able to undo certain things and rearrange certain things and look mm-hmm. at, you know, and really kind of have that, be able to have a little perspective. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think in any partnership, you have to be able to kind of have some live through the tension. And, and like you mm-hmm. say, like not necessarily people please, because it just won't end up, you won't end up with the best result. We had a conversation on the podcast. We had uh, Michael E.G. Nielsen, the editor of The Banshees of Inisherin, talking about how he helps bring the director's vision to life and he sees that as his job. And he's, you know, had the sound of he won the award for sound of metal and i had haven't actually seen the oscar results last from last night i'm preparing for our big no film school podcast but he was nominated for editor i actually think that um everything everywhere all at once won but it was it was very interesting to hear how like his passion was in supporting the vision of the director which you know i i identify as a director and i'm like this the story tops all, which maybe that is the through line as a director that you need to, that is like kind of what your stake on the ground is. Now, a lot of our listeners do come from the world of advertising and commercials. So moving into this being your first feature, having this extensive background and experience on set, what is one thing you wish you knew before you started working on Wildflower based on your experience or like a, a hole that you, a gap that you wanted to plug? Wow. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think that I always thought that you needed to have the financing in place before you could get your movie made. Like I, I just, uh, and I also kind of, which I, is not true. I think if you have an, if you have a really great script, it doesn't matter. Like you, you know, you, you get it out, you get it read and you start to put this thing together and you start to package it and the money will inevitably come. I think that's, mm something that I, I, you know, you know, I think also it's, there's nobody that's going to sort of give you, you know, you, you could be the most amazing commercial director or any director and, and, and you can have the, the best agent in the world and, or the most amazing manager or lawyer, nobody's bringing you any material. Like nobody's sort of, you're just not, you know, and I think if you're going to wait around for someone to get, give you something because of, this incredible short you made, or I don't think that that happens. It certainly didn't happen to me. And I think what was really important was just generating my own material. And, and the other thing that I, I, I think really helped me was I did have the trailer for the documentary. And so we did submit the trailer with the feature script. Mm. And I do think that, you know, I think that I, I gave a lot of maybe more credit than I should to people's imagination. And I think that if you can have anything that can accompany your script or whatever you're trying to get made, you just go shoot it. If, especially if we're talking to commercial people, like just shoot a teaser, shoot anything that can go with it. It's so, I, I feel like that's what also makes a big difference. And you know, I, I had heard that, you know, you, you know, it's like if you could do some kind of proof of concept that, you know, and, 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 you know, people who are, you know, obviously that's so much easier to just 
go out and shoot stuff now. I just think that even if it's a minute long, it's something that you can sort of show. Not to show that you can direct. It's almost like just to show what... What it is that you're trying to make. What it is. Totally. Yes, exactly. You just gave like two of the most tactical pieces of advice that I think we're all going to latch on to. Like first, green light yourself. And second, help bridge the gap to sell in your project with it, whether it is like a sizzle, a one minute sizzle or something that will push it a little bit further and make it a little bit easier to say yes. So saying yes to yourself and say, helping others say yes to you. And also yeah. this idea that like financing can come. You have to build it while you're flying the plane. That's That makes me very excited for the future. <laughs> um, yeah, I really and, believe that. Yeah. What was, um, what was the moment that you greenlit yourself where you're like, okay, this movie's happening. Who's getting you know, on board? I, I think that, again, and the other thing too, I would say the third piece is that you just never know who you're going to meet or who, who, who potentially has the connection that can kind of, and just to, you know, we can get so jaded, I think in this business and just kind of thinking it's impossible. And that so many no's we get constantly. And so this is going to sound super random. And I get, and I, and I'm, I, I will say like, like there's some luck that happened for me in this. There's no question, but I was playing tennis and a friend of mine who I didn't, you know, I didn't know exactly what he did and he didn't know exactly what I did, but you know, I think we were picking up balls at one point and, and came up that he was a producer and, and I said, I'm a director and he had a piece of material that he gave me and which I didn't really respond to. But then I said, well, this is actually what I really want to make. And it was wildflower. And so it was sort of, you know, and then from there, you know, he then sent it to another group of producers, which was, Hunting Lane. So it started with my friend Kyle Owens, who has Morning Moon. And then they sent the script over to Katie and Jamie at Hunting Lane. And then from there, it's sort of, it really kind of happened. Everything happened pretty quickly. But I believe I was meeting Kiernan prior to having any financing or, any, or anything. You know, wow. so it's, I just feel like, yeah, just, you, you know, sort of being open to, to the universe, I think a little bit. And also just, I mean, my friend hadn't hadn't done anything. He had no credits at that time, you know, um, as a producer. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was, I don't know. I just kind of, I thought it'd be super fun to do with him. And it didn't matter yeah. to me that he hadn't, didn't have any credits. And again, it was like his, his passion and his kind of, he felt like he had this hustle about him that, that and that's what, what really kind of makes the difference. It doesn't, yeah. again, that's like another thing where it's like, I don't really think it matters. I'd rather, you know, be in business with somebody who's got the hustle than a bunch of credits. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I also love that you pursued, you actively, you took this person seriously. Like you connected with him as a person, you appreciated the hustle. And, you know, so much of this industry is like a nebulous thing. And I think it is refreshing to hear that it's, it's okay to be taking uh, the meetings with your star before before the financing is secure and and it sounds like you put you you were sure of the project and yourself and confident in that and like the rest it sort of was you saying yes to people who would be invested in that and you yeah for sure and you know i think there was a i did have a there was a there was a, a, a you know on paper a much more um awarded producer who was who I did meet with prior who wanted to make 
kind of, um, you know, he wanted to re, you know, basically redo the documentary and make kind of like a, I forget what was the movie. It was, um, you know, like an ordinary people basically mm. like kind of recreate the documentary, which I was very specific about not wanting to do. And so I think also just having, staying true to your, your vision and, and what you want, because it is, it's, it's not easy and it takes a long time. And, and so you have to just, it has to be exactly what you want to do. And I was willing to, I guess, not make a movie, um, right. oh, you know, then, then sort of make the, the, the version of it that I didn't want to make. You're also protecting years of your life. You know, you don't want to make a movie that one is a producer is like, here, check this out. And you don't respond to it or, right. oh, do this version of that. Like you have to, again, coming back to like the director's job is to protect that vision and that gut instinct, especially like as in, in my early days, like when I was just starting out in this space, I think I was very um, excitable <laughs> To the mm. point that, like, I I was like, well, anything is an opportunity, and I need to seize it. But being able to differentiate, like, an opportunity, like connecting with a person who has energy and hustle and chutzpah, and you know, compromising your vision, and and again, it's years of your life. You'll, I I've heard horror stories of people working on films that are that are taking years off their life at the end because it's so miserable. Um, yeah, me now, too. One thing that I want to call out is the music in this movie. I I came up listening to soundtracks. Like I had Charlie's Angels Full Throttle soundtrack. Like that was how I discovered songs because we didn't have Spotify. These were all CDs. Um, yeah, me too. And yeah, it's uh, and this was like I was like, is this this is like an OC Garden State soundtrack? Which like we're not getting so many soundtracks these days, in my opinion. I don't know. Maybe I'm not watching enough movies. I love my score. I love John <laughs> Williams, but the soundtrack of this is amazing. And I and I thought it was. I'm curious, like, what was the process of finding these songs? Did you have some in mind before, or some of these like old favorites? Oh well, no. Thank you. I'm really uh, I I really appreciate that. And and it music's super important to me too. And I think. So, you know, like you, I actually grew up also like obsessed with soundtracks and, and Garden State was, was one of them that I listened to over and over and over yeah, again. Yeah. So good. And Chad Fisher, who is the composer on, on Wildflower, was actually the composer on Garden State. So oh that my was gosh. kind of a... No one, and, I was like, there's, it's, it's like this uh, familiar warmth. Maybe it's this, again, the film, it was like this comfort familiar thing a different story, a fresh take, like something that I hadn't seen before, but there's something so comfortable about it that I love. Oh, well, that, yeah, thank you so much. And I, you know, I, um, music's always been very, very important. And, and in like, we had a lot of the songs kind of baked into this script. Certainly, you know, Here We Go Again by Whitesnake was, was in it. And I, I wonder if I can tell you the story of how we even managed to get that in the movie. Um, I mean, some of the songs that were in, you know, the artists got behind it because they were, it was too expensive. I mean, this is a very indie movie. And so I think too, um, I would never limit myself or yourself, anybody who's trying to make a movie by thinking, oh, this is my budget's not, it will never be able to be enough to afford some of the music. I mean, we, we put these songs into the script and I would say three quarters of them I was able to get through 
very random, random ways. Like my casting director's brother being in one of the bands of one of the songs and, you know, Mm -hmm. and so writing an impassioned letter to him who then obviously there's publishing that they can't really do anything about, but then as an artist, and then Joseph Arthur was somebody that I've always sort of been obsessed with. And he was so gracious. And I, I, you know, the other thing too, is we sort of, I did kind of run out of of money um, at one point for the music and and me being, you know, I think maybe just growing up the way I did and like you listening to soundtracks and also just in my sort of the stuff that I do in commercials, it's all, it's all sort of very music driven. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I really kind of appreciate the power of what music can do to a scene. And so at one point, my daughter, who is, she was 16 and um, is a singer songwriter. I, I was like, you got to watch the movie. I need a song. Like you got to write a song, yeah. please. And so she watched it. And she wrote two songs, both of which are in the movie. At the end credit, uh, this, you know, that song, it's also mm-hmm. in the trailer, um, is by Frances and Simone, is uh, the name of her band. And, and so that's in there. And then that's um, a great she wrote name an, also. <laughs> and then like she, it feels and like then a, she, a Garden State soundtrack name, Frances and Simone. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that you kind of look, you, you do what you need to do. You lean on your friends, your daughter, if you have to, in my case. And, um, and they they really delivered, so I, I was yeah. thrilled. Oh well, it's so dreamy. Um, and it now, one thing that I do when I'm writing is I create a playlist that's like this is the future soundtrack of this film, and uh, and I'm like, oh, there's hope. Maybe this actually can be. Um, no, well- you absolutely. <laughs> I, I do the same thing, and and then on set, I played a lot of the music. I played, you know, pre and even during and. So much so that one one of the sequences, one song I wasn't able to get, and so we had to kind of that was a little bit of a problem because I had it playing. Well, not yeah, not only heartbreaking, but then it was baked in because it was like I was playing while we were recording. Oh my gosh, we were going to get it. I know. How did you get around that? How did you? uh... It was that was one of the visual sequences, so it really wasn't that it wasn't that that much of a problem, but but it was the whole um, spirit of it and the rhythm yeah. of the way the camera oh, was moving and yeah. stuff. I know that was a bit heartbreak. A little heartbreak. We had to have one thing not work out with this film. Yeah. One well, there was a few, I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah. Thing, any good stories? Dude, well, the other thing, just coming from commercials, I think what's what um, I just sort of always, you go in and you're like, you know, you have it in your mind, like, Oh, you know, yeah, I'm going to shoot this handheld, but I also, I may want to, you know, I may want to do a dolly shot or I might want to have a, a steady cam shot and so we can sort of not necessarily decide but you know in the moment you can say you know what this i don't like this i want to let's hop on the dolly i didn't have that luxury on this movie mm. and so i had to pick the days that i had the dolly because it's an expense that we and so i went through and it's like okay i did the best i could but i remember on day one which we were shooting actually the first the first thing we shot i believe was the first thing we shot was in the um when we were in that little slot car store mm-hmm. you know or like you know that i don't know what you call it slot car track small, track yeah small place car, you go racing to, car toy yes track things exactly that's the, official. that's the official term um when we so when we went there i i i, I that was one of the days i was like okay i'm not going to need the dolly and then of course i was like i want the dolly and there's no dolly like it's not like when you're on a commercial set you're like oh grab the dolly from the truck and you know what char- you know we will charge us the 50 bucks or whatever it's going to be yeah i like and so i we we ended up uh, my dp jeff cutter who's incredible we just ended up kind of making this it was like a film school kind of prep basically like a skateboard type of a 
Dolly thing that looked like this weird rickshaw, you know, pre <laughs> prehistoric yes, yes. kind of a contraption. And that, and you know, Jeff's on it and it's it's go wobbling back and forth. It wasn't quite, but like I think you have to be able to roll with it. And that was something that I was, I, I you know, I, I certainly I, I don't know how I could have been any more prepared because you just sort of get in and sometimes you're like, I don't, I want it to be a dolly. I don't want to, you know, I don't know. But that's the indie film flex that you have to be ready to do. So totally. I'd love to see a picture. If you have one, we'd love to see it. Here. I do. I have Jeff on this thing because I was, oh it was made gosh. me laugh. I'll send we it. put it in the article that we published <laughs> alongside. I think, yeah. I think, uh, I don't know if you follow the Instagram account. It's called Shitty Rigs and it's just like, this oh, sounds way more legit than that, but uh, yes. yeah, we've done. No, we do it's not. We it's going to be great. <laughs> um, I can't wait to see it. Well, uh, as we wrap up here, what uh, any advice that you have for emerging filmmakers or somebody who's just get, getting their start out? Besides, it's okay to shoot on a skateboard. I think that it's just you know it, it all goes. It, it all for me comes down to the material and finding something that you're passionate about. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, you, you come from the most perfect family that isn't interesting. It, that, it doesn't matter. Like just whatever it is that you're interested in, I feel like it all comes down to the material in, in the end. And, and I also think maybe don't be so hard on yourself and, and don't be so precious that you, you feel like, you know, there's something better. And, and I was very hard on myself, I feel like, and that, and that might've kept me from doing this sooner in terms of just, you know, nothing was ever good enough. There was, wasn't the story that I wanted to tell enough. And like I said, I, I still really love, you know, telling stories of all length, whether it's 30 yeah. seconds, 15 seconds, figure out a story that's got a beginning, middle and an end that you love and, and just go do it. And even if you do it in a rough form, you never know. And then that gets someone else excited. And then that, and before you know it, you know, that one friend of yours who's excited, will share it with an actor friend. And I just think that it's allowing the universe to kind of you know, look after you a little bit yeah. also is, and, 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 and kind of help you get out of your own way. Maybe, you know, if you just kind of start making stuff. And trust it. I love that. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation and I can't wait for people to see your film streaming. And also a couple of lucky folks will get to see it before this comes out on the 17th in theaters. So congratulations again, Matt. And thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Max Muckler for joining us and being an open book and to our listeners for tuning in. Now that we all know what we need to do to make our first feature with these marching orders, I want to hear from you. Are you about to endeavor on your first feature, your second feature, your first short? What scares you most? What's keeping you motivated? Like Matt said, it's important that we don't get in our own way. We can acknowledge it, but we have to keep going. And that is the best permission you can give us as emerging filmmakers. You can email us at podcast.nofilmschool.com and tell us all these things. We want to hear from you. And you can also follow us across all the socials on No Film School. And of course, you can find us on nofilmschool.com. Thank you so much for listening and have a good one. Mm-hmm.